Uh, but in particular, this morning, we're going through a passage that's both really challenging, uh, really beautiful, and honestly, it's been one in which the Lord has used in my life regularly. And in that, even before we get started, this morning we are going to touch on a few things that are extremely sensitive in our time and age. Uh, We are coming into a, a section of scripture that deals with the question of homosexuality, and so we will be taking a little bit of an aside this morning uh, but even up at the top, I want to I make a point to say we are doing an aside on homosexuality because it's been mishandled so much, not because it's the most important thing in the text that we're going to be walking through today. And so I just, at the top, I want to let you guys know that when we pause to talk about practicing homosexuality, uh, that we're doing that not because that's what Paul is emphasizing is more important than anything else but we're taking a stop, a, a pastoral stop, to say, hey, we, we need to clarify a few things around this conversation, around this topic. And I just want to make sure you guys know that as we're heading into it. The thing on top of that is I want to make sure anytime we come into a, a, a moment where Scripture speaks to something that is very countercultural to where we're at, we need to come from a posture of humility And also a reminder of we are putting ourselves, each of us, we're putting ourselves under the word of God. That it's important for us to come and be reminded. I think there's many times in life where we try and maybe pick or choose or we try and talk about the thing that I want. And uh, there are plenty of things that I want or wish scripture said or allowed. But often there are times where it goes against what I want. And when it comes to following Jesus, Jesus never said, follow me if you want to. (laughs) And he never said, follow me and you can keep all of these other things. In Luke 9, Jesus says, if anybody wishes to come and follow me, he must deny himself, all of himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to gain his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall surely find it. So as we talk about this this morning, not just about this area of those who practice homosexuality, because there is going to be, all of us, by the way, are going to find some sort of roots in this list that Paul is going to bring about. All of us need to come with this posture of humility. All of us need to come with a posture of, Lord, we want to receive from you today, and we give you invitation. And so no matter where you're at, where, wherever you've come from, uh, we're so glad that you're here, and we're glad that we get to come together as a church family and say, God, we want to learn from you today. So with that, I'm just going to pray for us, and then we're going to read through the passage. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning grateful for the opportunity to engage with you in your word. And God, we come to you grateful to know that there is nothing that is too far gone for you to redeem. We come to you grateful and thankful that because of your son Jesus, we're forgiven and we're invited into a new way of life. So, Father, this morning, we just we want to give you permission. I love the song that we got to sing, Lord, have your way. We ask that you would continue to have your way in our lives, that you would continue to shape us into the sons and daughters that you're calling and inviting us to be. And, Lord, we also, uh, and I can't do this for everybody else, but I know for me, God, I, just, I submit myself to your word. Trust that it's authoritative, that it's inspired by you. And we invite you to speak and to lead us this morning. We love you so much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 6, only doing three verses this morning, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And one of the sweetest verses in all of scripture. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You're sanctified. You're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's read it one more time together. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Isn't that so good? <laughs> oh man, I hope even as we're just reading over that, there's a sweetness to Scripture and a, a palpability to it. That it's, that it's not far off, that it's near. But such were some of you. Such were some of you. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So let's walk through this kind of line by line as we've only got three verses which be like, oh, it's short. No, it's not going to be short today. It's not. I'm not even going to dare promise that. Let's start right here at the beginning. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Right off the bat, we need a little clarity here. Some of your translations say the wicked. Are, the ESV says unrighteous, but this word is actually closer to wrongdoer. Verses 9 through 11 are actually really closely connected with verses 1 through 8, like we talked about last week where we walked through lawsuits and legal disputes and having uh, engaging in that space. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 8, this is where these are too linked, but you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. That word wrong in Greek is adikeo. And in verse 9, unrighteousness as is adikos. So adikeo is a noun, and adikos is a verb. Paul leaves off, and he says, you yourselves wrong each other. In verse 9, you do not know that you wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sometimes we use big words like righteousness, uh, and which is not like an overly big word, but sometimes it can feel so spiritual or so uh, theological that it doesn't feel rooted or grounded. And it's good sometimes just to bring things back down. And really what Paul's saying is, hey, you wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's connecting this to the people going to court, and he's connecting this to the guy who was sleeping with his stepmom. Hey, you wrongdoers, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And this phrase, inherit the kingdom of God, is, it's, this isn't like a fantastic one-to-one, -one, but it's kind of similar to uh, the equivalent to you will not go to heaven when you die type of a thing. The kingdom of God is, is similar to that. When they're, saying, when they're saying this, when Paul's saying this, this is equivalent to go to heaven when you die. And Paul's been laying out this case of, hey, you guys are, are wrongdoing each other in many different ways. That is not a marker of the kingdom of God. That's why he goes on to say, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Once again, who's Paul writing to? The church. And I, I love the simple admonishment here. Do not be deceived. I think sometimes some of the simplest call-outs in Scripture can sometimes be the ones that we breeze over the fastest. 
Everybody's like, oh, I want to get into these like, difficult conversations. And Paul starts before he gets into these things and he says, do not be deceived. I'm curious for you guys, in a little interaction here, when it comes to this idea of being deceived, in what ways do you think, maybe like in our day and age, the church is deceived or can be deceived? Not, not like we're all deceived in this area, but in, in what ways have you guys seen things kind of slip into the church maybe as lies? And maybe another way you can think about it, if, if Paul were maybe writing to Anthem Camarillo, what do you think he would be warning us to not be deceived about. Any thoughts? This could be personal, this could be big picture. Anybody? Any areas in which Casey's got one? Okay. Yeah, we can be deceived into this, this lie that if I choose God, then that means my life equals. If I do the right thing, I'll be Yep. Yeah, we can. Yeah, absolutely. Mm hmm. Sure. Vinny. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I think we can be deceived into a hyper-individualism. We lose sight of the family at large, and it's all about me. And just because you do something outside of your norm, you deserve a paycheck, so to speak. Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Are you going to say something, Jeff? That's okay. <laughs> I think there is a, one of the reasons Paul says not to be deceived is because that's part of what the enemy does, right? He's the father of lies. He's the king deceiver, if you will. And he's very sneaky. Like, like he is very tricky, and he is way more present than any of us think and desires to come in and attach himself to partial truths or, and try and just slowly but surely try and render us incompetent or render us useless or uh, render us into a place where we view ourselves so poorly that we can't be used by God. But one of the biggest lies that comes into play is that a little bit of sin isn't that big of a deal. Some of the lies that come our way is that, sure, like, yeah, we all sin, right? And so, like, we don't have to really worry about it. Like, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We're all going to be fine. Like, and, and look, I love the confidence that we have in what Jesus accomplished on the cross. But sin causes a little bit of pleasure for a short amount of time, but a lifetime of pain. Obedience, on the other hand, sometimes can feel a little bit painful in the moment, but lead to a lifetime of pleasure. God says no in regards to sinful activity because sin is bad and lethal. The Bible never says sin isn't fun. I think all of us have a admitted that we are sinners and we have fallen short of the glory of God. You don't sin because it's the worst thing in the world. You sin because there's something alluring about it. You sin because there's something about it that's, that's, that's like, oh, that's in the moment, that seems so much better. But most of us have also experienced the reality that sin wreaks havoc on your life, not just your life, on lives around you.
Paul says, do not be deceived about that kind of life. Don't be deceived that sin is not a big deal. Don't be deceived in thinking that it's okay to live a regular, sinful, non-repentant life. And there is warning in this passage that if that's the life you live, Paul is warning you that potentially you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And here Paul lays out a list and it's not exhaustive, meaning it's not complete. This is, Paul's highlighting issues that are present in Corinth, but it's not like, hey, these are the only things you ever need to be worried about. But he's highlighting issues that are incredibly important to the city in Corinth and that time and place. And also, as we can see, they're, they're both specific and relatively generic in the sense that they can be pretty much applied to our culture exactly as well. So let's start walking through this. First, he, he starts his selection of, of if you practice these things, then potentially you will not inherit the kingdom of God. It says, neither the sexually immoral. The, world, the word here is pornos, which comes from the word pornea, which everybody in our culture understands now, like this is where we get the word pornography from. This is a word used all over the New Testament. It is a junk drawer term for any form of sexual activity outside of the bounds of marriage. We're going to get into marriage and sexuality in the next couple weeks, but the short version is this, that God created sexuality and he created sexuality to thrive in the context of the covenant of marriage. We're not even, I don't want to get into any sort of conversation regarding illegal marriage or unions or any of that, but within a biblical covenant of marriage, which Genesis 2 would highlight as one man and one woman in a lifelong covenant before God. But one of the things that Paul is highlighting here that we must be reminded of is that Christian sexual ethics is not arbitrary, but it's rooted in God's creational prescription for human flourishing. And the early Christian way of viewing sex and sexuality and sexual expression was incredibly radical. Preston Sprinkle says this, he says, we can't understand the Christian sexual ethic until we first bathe ourselves in the radical countercultural story of God, a story where our desires are crucified to the cross. Even sex is brought under the reign of Jesus and has radical implications for what it means to follow Jesus. Part of the early Christian identity was to embrace, as hard as it may be, a radically countercultural sexual ethic. Sexual immorality was rampant in the Roman world, and this is something maybe that we probably don't understand. Generally, we think that sexual immorality has actually expanded like crazy over the years, and maybe to some degree that's true. But there was a, a rampant sexual immorality that existed in the Roman world that we don't remember, that we don't comprehend, such as it was normal, even for married folks in a normal Roman society to, it was like, expected the normal for men to go visit prostitutes on a regular basis. Like, no problem, no issue at all. If people had slaves, they were allowed, it was permissible for them to engage in sexual actions with them. And marriage was, in many regards, uh, very loose and very open. And on top of that, there were forms of worship that involved temple prostitution. But like sexuality, sexual immorality, we, I think we look at our culture now and we're like, oh, it's so, it's so gnarly. And it, and it is, but we've got to understand that, that sexual immorality has been gnarly for a really long time. Thinking of you, Angelica, when I use the word gnarly. It's probably not the right word. Just mean it's, it's big, it's gross, and it's, what I'm trying to highlight is the deceiver, Satan. He doesn't really act in new ways. Because it's worked forever. There's a pastor in New York named John Tyson and he says, everything in life is about sex. And if it's not about sex, it's about power. And these are, which is kind of a contradictory statement, but what I'm trying to highlight is, this is the way the enemy works. And he works and continues to work this way because it works. 
Paul is reminding those in Corinth that following Jesus includes a countercultural sexual ethic. Chiefly that sexual activity outside of a marriage relationship between two different sexes is against God's will. And if done in a repeated, unrepentant manner will result in not inheriting the kingdom of God. And if you're here and you're struggling with, with sexual temptation like most of humanity, we want you to know that you're welcome here. That we're open and honest about dealing with these things. Paul's writing to the church, remember? He's writing to the church because that church has issues with sexual immorality. It would be arrogant of us to say, oh, that's not us, that's just them. Sexual immorality is just as present, if not more than ever. And when I say we're welcome here, we're welcome here as we step into the light and we bring our sin forward and we say, Jesus, this is not the way you've called us to live. And as we'll see in this text, you don't need, we don't need to be enslaved to these sins, to these desires. God has given you power chiefly in his Holy Spirit to free you from these desires. It's not easy. If you've ever walked through some of these issues, you know it's not easy. Let's keep going or else we'll never finish. <laughs> Nor idolaters. Okay, continue with idolatry. What is it? Uh, this is when you invent your own spirituality. When you make God in your own image. We did a series a few months ago called God Has a Name. If you, if you weren't here for that, we invite you to go and take a listen. But a lot of the idea with idolatry is when you begin to make God into what you want God to be, not who he actually is. Idolatry was all over the first century. Idolatry is still alive and exists all around the world today and not just in places like Nepal or places where Hinduism or other animistic cultures and uh, like it's everywhere. Tim Keller says this about idolatry. He says, if anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life and identity, then it is an idol. If anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, and identity, then it's an idol. It goes on to say the human heart is indeed, I love this, indeed a factory that mass produces idols. Idolatry is well and alive today. May not be a totem or a carved image here in Camarillo, or even the temptation to worship another God, but it might be something else, maybe even be something that's, in theory, like not spiritual. And to use Keller's framework, what's the most fundamental thing to your happiness, to your meaning of life, to your identity? Maybe another way to ask that question is, what can't you live without? Netflix, iPhone, money, fame, status, <laughs> Facebook. <laughs> All of these things can become idols. And worship and idolatry go hand in hand. We've got to remember that worship isn't a Christian thing, it's a human thing. Humans worship. And Paul warns about idolatry. We're made to worship that which is treasured most. I'm going to read something from N.T. Wright. He says, when we humans commit idolatry, worshiping that which is not God as if it were, we thereby give to other creatures and beings in the cosmos a power, a prestige, an authority over us, which we, under God, were supposed to have over them. When you worship an idol, whatever it is, you abdicate something of your own proper human authority over the world and give it instead to that thing 
whatever it is. When we worship things, we give them power. It's interesting, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, idolatry is the only command in the Ten Commandments that's repeated virtually. Both one and two at the core are, are idolatry. Thou shalt not have any other gods before me, and you shalt not make any carved image. Do you know what most people argue is the last few words of written scripture is? By John, 1 John 3, my dear children, keep yourself from idols. It's interesting, in the Western world, I think you talk about a way in which we're deceived, maybe almost chiefly, is this idea of idolatry. We don't worship a tree, or we don't worship like this little like bellied thing. Like We don't worship whatever this is, and, and yet the last words written in Scripture and some of the first two commandments and the Ten Commandments are, hey, you need to be on guard. You need to pay attention about idolatry. It is sneaky. And the things we worship, we give power. As I was preparing for this, I couldn't get away from this. this. This was one of those things for me as I was prepping the message this week that I thought for our church family, we actually need to, we need to pay attention to. This idea of idolatry, it's one that we very easily skip over because it also feels very blatant in like, I think we think of like the, you know, the Nebuchadnezzar idol or whatever, where it's like, hey, we have the opportunity in front of everybody either to stand up and, and, and like not bow to this idol or we, you know, it's like we think of it as this big giant public spectacle, I think sometimes. And idolatry is not always in that way. Oftentimes it's like Keller talks about, it's these, these things that we create in our own heart as we find things that we desire, things that we think will make us happy or things that we think are more important or whatever it might be. And so I just encourage you this week, I can't tell you what your idols are, but I can say that there are idols in your life. I believe for all of us, there's idols in our lives. And the good thing, just as much as our hearts are factory producing idols, we have a Jesus who is, a, who is an idol slayer if we, if we put that before him. So I invite you to take some time this week to ask God, God, is there, are there areas where you are wanting me to see that I can slip into idolatry? Are there things in my life that are idols? Talk to him about it. Next, adul adulter adulterers. In Greek, it's moikos. Uh, this one has, this one's double meaning, okay? So this adulterers first is, is the most simple and what Everybody would understand when you say the word adultery. Somebody who has sex with somebody out else who is not, somebody who is in a sexually committed, a covenant of marriage who has sex with somebody outside of that. Okay? It is a uh, sexual act. There is throughout scripture, however, this thread that even Paul would be touching on here of a covenant faithfulness between Israel and God. So there is a connection to this idea of cheating on Yahweh. Of going against the covenant promise. Marriage itself is never an end in and of itself. It's to point us to the best covenant relationship and that's between God and man. And so when Paul talks about moikos, yes, or excuse me, adulterers, it's moikos in Greek. When Paul talks about it, he is talking about the actual sexual act, but there is an underlining uh, piece there too that, that is warning about a covenant unfaithfulness with Yahweh. Next, nor men who practice homosexuality. So I mentioned this before, but right off the bat, I just want to be really, really, really clear. The LGBTQ conversation is not the main focus of this text. Because it's such a huge question for our time and place, we are going to take some aside here. 
I also want you to know this is not going to be exhaustive. And for some, it may create some more questions, and that is okay. One of our heart's desires with engaging in this text and with in having this conversation is that the conversation needs to start. There's so many folks who are afraid to have this conversation, who are afraid to talk about what Scripture has to say, and we're going to press into that too. Uh, we're going to press into that here, but we're going to do it with a lot of grace and humility. So let's start with the phrase that Paul uses here, and then we're going to pull back and look at a a few myths or a few questions that, that are really pertinent for us today. I also want to highlight that I'm using the phrase homosexuality because it's in the text. The term homosexual actually can be quite offensive today, and I actually really encourage you uh, not to use the term. I'm using it because it's what's here in the text, but as we engage in our world, I invite you for the time being, and it's really hard, as if you go to the thing with Preston later tonight, it's really hard to keep up with what language is appropriate and inappropriate. It's, re- I just, it's really, really hard. But please, 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 because of your love and your compassion for those who may be far from God, be sensitive to the language that you use. Please. And I'm just letting you know that right now, that term homosexual is actually, it's right on the bubble between being offensive and being like totally normative. There's actually a desire to reclaim the term but we're coming out of a season where the term homosexual is actually incredibly offensive. I'm sure that's confusing. So if you're wondering, just use the term gay or use the term queer. I'm just from a language perspective. I know, it's, I know you were like, you can say that? Yes, you can. Uh, it's, way more, uh, it's way more appropriate when you're talking with people who are in the LGBTQ community to use the term gay or to use the term queer. That's just a pastoral aside, trying to encourage and also step in and say, it's, hard. It's, it's a hard space to walk in well. But with that, we're using this term because this is what Paul uses, this is what's in the text, and we're going to unpack it now. Men who practice homosexuality. Uh, oh, another small disclaimer would be the way Paul's using this is talking about the actual act. He's not talking about orientation or desire, or he's, and he's not talking about attraction. He's talking about actual acts, which is important for our distinction. Okay, so the first term is malakos. There's two words here, not in malakos. Malakos, and this other one is arson okoites. It's hard. It's a combo word. But this first word, malakos, is referring to a passive partner. The word literally means soft effeminate or playing the role of the female. The second term is arsenokoites. And this is referring to the active partner playing the role of the male. Today we think in terms of heterosexual or homosexual, but in Paul's time and place, there are are lots of similarities, but they would think in terms of passive and active. The active partner would be the more powerful, more wealthy, from a higher class or status. And the passive partners was almost always from a lower class. This could be a woman, it could be a man, or it could be a young boy. The most common form of homosexuality in the first century or in Paul's day was uh, pederasty. And this is a relationship with a younger boy. There are many arguments that talk about how this is uh, what's being condemned, but the reality in, in, this, in this time and place in the first century, uh, we want to talk about a kind of a twisted sexual ethic. This was totally consensual. This is an older, older man in relationship with a younger boy, early teens to mid-teens, and this was a total normal practice. It was consensual. It was a sexual relationship. And it was generally a move, like many things in those days, to increase your power and status. And so many times people in younger or lower classes would end up in these relationships because as you were engaging in these relationships, your status in some regards within the community was elevated. This is what we're saying by sexual deviancy was much down a further path, sometimes than even today, 
Most of us can't fathom what somebody would do if a 45-year-old male was in a relationship with a 13-year-old. Well, most of us do know what would happen. They'd be in jail. But in Paul's day, this is normal. This is accepted practice. But it was also consensual, and both parties were doing this for specific reasons. And Paul is still saying, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived by the prevailing culture of our day or of Paul's day. Paul very plainly, along with the list of eight other things, says those who practice homosexuality and any of these other eight things in an unrepentant manner will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you want to know, this is is why I started the way I did this morning with things like, I sometimes wish that scripture said something a little bit different. I wish that I could stand up here with a good conscience and say, yes, the Bible is supportive of, of homosexual activity and it's totally okay. I cannot do that. I would be unfaithful to you as a pastor. I would be unfaithful to the word of God. I can't say that. It's one of the spaces that is so challenging in our culture today is to say, how then do we live in a society like we're in today where you're called a bigot if you say that homosexuality is not okay, and then you're called uh, <laughs> a liberal or unbiblical if you say that it is okay, and how do you operate? How do we live in a culture like today? And, and some of the issues are that there are some myths that exist that I think need to be maybe busted a little bit. And one of the myths that exists in our culture, not just in our culture, but probably in the first century as well, is that's, that your sexuality is the most important part of who you are. Myth number one, your sexuality is the most important part of who you are. This typically comes from many folks who are outside the church and even from those inside the church who are trying to get to an affirming position. And this kind of makes sense, right? I mean, if you don't follow Jesus and your identity isn't rooted in him, where else is it going to be rooted? Remember Paul's call to the church to not judge those who are outside the church. And sadly, the church is very... we, are, we don't have a great track record with treating folks who practice homosexuality with grace and love. We have a pretty good track record of removing ourselves as far away as we can, pointing fingers, and being scared about the, what the world is coming to. That's not our call. but we can buy into this myth that the most important thing about us is our sexuality. At the core, it's also that, hey, whatever you feel, it's the follow your heart type of uh, ethic. But this isn't true. Because the reality is, as we learn in Genesis 1, is that we are actually made in the image of God. And our image and our identity is formed, excuse me, and shaped in Him. The thing is, though, your sexuality matters. It's one of the things Paul's highlighting. It's not that it doesn't matter at all. Sexuality is a crucial component to our life and humanness. But it's not the only or the most important thing about you. This can sound incredibly harsh and insensitive. Yet this is part of Jesus' radical call to come and follow him. That's why we started with Luke 9. 
anybody wants to come and follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily. When he says deny himself, that's, that's talking about all of your desires. Good, bad, and different. Must be willing to lay those down. And far too often, and this isn't just within a, uh, a homosexuality conversation, this is in many other areas of life. We see Jesus, I'm going to follow you, but I'm going to hold on to this part, and this part, and this part, and this part, and we're going to try and follow you together. And you're saying, no, anybody who wants to follow me, you must deny yourself. You must let go, drop those things, or in Paul's language, you must put off the old and put on the new. Over and over and over again. But sometimes there's things about us that can feel so core to who we are that we're not willing to lay those things aside to follow Jesus. When it comes to that myth that your sexuality is the most important part of who you are, as followers of Jesus, we must approach that with such grace and humility because that is incredibly challenging to talk to somebody about. And if somebody's not a follower of Jesus, you can't expect them to live any different. And so we have to stop standing off in judgment and saying, how dare they? It's unhelpful. But he's talking to the church and so your thing may not be practicing homosexuality or your, your sexuality may not be the thing that's most important to you, but maybe, maybe there is something else that you, Christian, you follower of Jesus, are clinging to, that you're trying to hold on to, that you're trying to say, uh-uh, Jesus, I'll give you all of this, but not this part. Be good for you and your time with Jesus as we're looking to grow in our devotion to him in prayer, to be willing to talk to him about that. Again, this comes back to idolatry, right? Is there a certain part of even my identity that I'm not willing to hand over to you, Jesus? And here is invitation, and we'll get to the beautiful part in just a second. Second, myth number two, and this specifically is for the church that we must hear this, and some of, well, whatever. It's that homosexuality is the ultimate sin. Let's just be really clear altogether. That is baloney. That is not what scripture presents. It does not present a fact that homosexuality is the biggest sin. Paul talks about sexual immorality having certain implications as we'll get into next week. That there are serious consequences to sexual immorality in our lives. But he talks about sexual immorality, not just homosexuality. You guys, homosexuality is not the ultimate sin. It's been painted as the worst thing. And I just invite you, if that is a posture that you've had or held, I invite you to spend time repenting to Jesus. Because that is not any more worse than idolatry, than other forms of sexual immorality, than thievery. And, and you guys, we do, we, we like elevate it to this thing that scripture never does. Paul doesn't elevate it, he also doesn't de-escalate it either. It is a thing, it's an issue. But it is not the biggest. And I want you to know that if you're here today and, and homosexuality is part of your present or your past or same-sex attraction, I just want you to know you have a place here. That the rest of this list too, there's not any single one of us that can't say that I've never done something that's on this list. And we all need the same thing. And that's Jesus himself.
I do want to invite you, if you found yourself struggling with that myth that homosexuality is the ultimate sin, I ask you to ask God to give you the compassion that He has for those who are far from Him. Remember when Jesus, in Matthew, he's, t- he's looking out among the crowd and He's filled with compassion and tears and He looks out at them like sheep without a shepherd. Ask God to increase your compassion. Okay, a couple quick questions that we need to move through that I think might be resting in some of our minds. Does the Bible clearly teach that same sex sexual activity is a sin? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. And we should open that up as Scripture says, any sexual activity outside of the bonds of marriage is sin. Just like porn, just like adultery, we can't just take Bible's prohibitions of same-sexual be- same sex sexual behavior and use those same prohibitions to condemn same-sex attraction or orientation. These are critical distinctions. So question number two is, is being gay a sin? No. Simply being gay and sexual orientation is no more, no more or less sinful than being straight. Our attractions and orientations don't make us sinful or holy. It's what we do with our attractions and orientations. The way we steward our sexuality is what God is calling us to. Remember the identity Paul, the identity markers that Paul highlighted about Paul and Apollos, that they are servants and stewards. And it might be interesting to think about, but you are, there is a degree of accountability that we will be called to of how have you stewarded your sexuality? This is another area, I believe, where the church has, uh, sometimes just with poor language, um, had a t- has had a tendency to isolate the gay community. Because intentionally or not, many have received this not truth, that being gay is a sin and makes me an abomination to the Lord. That is not what Scripture teaches. Now, we already answered that first question, right? What homosexual activity, engaging in that is sinful, but having same-sex attraction is not sinful in and of itself. The language we use in this is a big deal. And I, I really, really, really invite you guys, we need to have spaces there where we can have conversations in, with this, with people who are engaging in same-sex attraction. Um, I don't know exactly what the stats are. You can, we'll go to Preston tonight at, up at the bridge. And he's going to help remind, like, the, the likelihood of somebody engaging or having same-sex attraction in this room is like it's guaranteed from a statistical standpoint. So we have, to, we have to be willing to have conversations. We need to engage in it and we need to be willing to listen, listen, listen. Another really tricky question is, does God make people gay? No. God made you in his image. And we come into a fallen world. We're born into sin. We all have part of our humanity that is bent away from God and want what is wrong. To be fully human is not to give into every sincere craving, desire, or feeling, but to actually lay down ourselves, lay down 
our rights. We talked about it last week, Ewan. Paul says in Galatians 5.17, the Spirit helps to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Meaning sometimes what we want to do is at odds at what God wants for us. Preston says this, this side of heaven, our desires cannot be fully trusted. This question has so much nuance to it and uh, Preston does a great job. If you haven't looked up his book, he's got a phenomenal book that we'd suggest reading that it does a way better job than I will do. Remember, what we're doing this morning is not exhaustive. We're just trying to touch on a few things that are really important for us. Question number four that's really important is, can I follow Jesus and be gay at the same time? This is another loaded question that depends heavily on language and meaning. Can someone practicing homosexuality and pursuing romantic and sexual same-sex relationship also follow Jesus? See, the Bible says no. Not any more than anyone on your right or left who is practicing adultery or idolatry or any other unrepentant sin. Remember, if you haven't heard this theme, Jesus' invitation to follow him, it involves a dying to self. Now, can someone who is same-sex attracted or maybe oriented gay and choosing not to act on those urges or if they have, uh, have a repentant posture and choose to submit themselves to God, whether single or celibate, or even find themselves married in the future. Can this, can this happen? Can this, is this, a, is this appropriate? Yes, of course, 100%. One of the things the church has to stop doing is stop trying to make people not gay. Or stop trying to make people, yeah, that's right. That should never be our goal. That should, that's not the goal of God is to make anybody not gay. The goal of God is to draw people to himself and to release followers of Jesus into kingdom ministry. Again, if there's one area where the church has failed traumatically, it's in trying to make people not gay. Like, here, come in, I'm gonna wave a wand over you and all of a sudden, all of that's going to be gone. Because that's not in scripture anywhere. It's not appropriate. And if you've found yourself in that space, I invite you to repent. That's a posture that you've held. The church is a hospital for broken people and Jesus is the doctor. This is a place for sons and daughters to help each other pursue holiness, righteousness, sanctification, and to pursue Jesus together, whatever your sins, struggle, and backgrounds are. Look where this sin is listed in all of Paul's, in Paul's list here. It's right in the middle. It's not any more significant. Than, I mean, if, if you want to talk about order, and order often does matter in literature, the first two are probably the ones that he's most pounding on. These other ones are significant for sure, but it's what we can know for sure is that this is not any more significant than the rest on that list. Nate Collins and Greg Coles write this in a, in a, in a helpful letter. It says, as long as Christians persist in the assertion that being gay is a sin, Far too many sexual minorities will hear the message that their orientation places them outside the reach of God's grace. That they cannot follow Jesus as long as they don't experience attraction to the opposite sex. But the gospel has never been about orientation change. The gospel never ranks anyone as more or less worthy of grace. The gospel is a messy and democratizing invitation to follow Jesus no matter what desires we must learn to steward along the way, no matter how costly the journey turns out to be.
All right, so I know that was a lot. In some, this may be producing more questions. That's, that's okay. Hopefully for many today, this is just the beginning of hope of, of open dialogue of what scripture calls us to. And if you're able to come to Preston's event tonight, awesome. If you haven't registered, unfortunately it's sold out. There's over 400 people who are coming. Uh, and because of course this is something that we need to be talked about. But I have to make sure that we highlight the, the, the other things on this list or else I do the very thing that I didn't want to do and say this is all about homosexuality, which is not. So he says, who else won't inherit the kingdom of God? Thieves nor the greedy. Greed is mental gluttony. I love that. This idea when you never have enough, nor drunkards, nor revilers. This is a word for slander or gossip, people who speak evil about each other, nor swindlers, people who cheat others out of money. I would guess that there's, almost, there's not a single one of us in this room who can't identify it with at least one of those activities especially reviler, I think most likely there's not a single one in here who hasn't spoken an evil word over somebody, who hasn't gossiped. Many others. <laughs> right, which, which, which is so beautiful, and I love that you say that, Lloyd, because this is the beautiful gospel reality, but such were some of you. That's who you were but you've been washed, you've been cleansed. You've been sanctified, you've been justified. So brothers and sisters, act like it, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived that you've gotta live like this world lives. Do not be deceived that you can't live victoriously despite what our desires and cravings and our background and our history might be. Sons and daughters, you have King Jesus who rose from the dead. He can help you with your porn problem. He can help you with your gossiping tongue. He can help you with your idolatry. He can help you with your depression. But it's not just like, again, it's not like we get to wave this magic wand. This is why that call to follow Jesus, if anybody wants to come to me, if anybody wants to follow me, he must deny himself daily. Take up his cross and follow me. And step into that reality every day that you were washed this is, this is Paul saying, that shed blood of Jesus that has washed. We sing that song, White as Snow. I don't know if we sing that song. <laughs> it's an old song. <laughs> the idea where we are washed clean. We are washed clean, not because of a snap of the fingers, but because Jesus was crucified. As a sacrificial lamb worship team, come on up. You're sanctified, meaning you are set apart ones. That word sanctification, we always think about becoming more this idea of like you are made holy, and that's the idea you are set apart. Stop living like the world. You're set apart. Don't be deceived. You're set apart. Live as sons and daughters of the king who have been washed, and you are justified. That means that Jesus has taken his gavel, and he has pounded it down, and he says, you are my son and daughter, and I declare you innocent because I was guilty for you. So sons and daughters walk in that reality and take that Jesus with you into these messy, broken parts of our lives because no matter where we're at, no matter what your issue is, no matter what your idol is, no matter what your orientation might be, Jesus is the solution. And we get to bring Jesus. We are heralders of Jesus. We get to bring him with us wherever we go. So let us rejoice. Let us celebrate. And let's even respond now as we sing about the one who has cleansed us, who has washed us, who has sanctified us, who has justified us. Let us sing to him. Let us respond as we take communion, as we take the bread and we dip it in the juice. The bread represents the body of Christ which was given for you and I, that he has come in the flesh. Not an idea, not a spirit, a person. 
And the juice represents that blood which was shed, which I know sometimes can feel gruesome, but was mandatory that we might be washed. Take communion this morning, celebrating what Jesus declares over you, that you've been washed, that you are sanctified, that you're justified. And as you take it with those around you, would you just say, and God, would you help us? Would you help us walk in that reality? If there's stuff going on in your life and you want prayer this morning, we'd love to pray with you, whatever it might be. I don't know what the Lord's doing in you, but I know I'm thankful and excited to sing right now because of who Jesus is. Will you pray with me as we respond now? Holy Father, we come to you and we just declare that you are God and we are not. And we're thankful, so thankful, King Jesus, for who you are and what you've done on our behalf. Spirit, Holy Spirit, we invite you to, to convict. If there's areas that need to be convicted, we ask that you would lead us. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance. Father, would you create in us, help us be a people who understand who we were so that we can now even understand more fully who we are in you, Jesus. I just invite you to continue to, to move and shape as we respond now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.